Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that I'm back in strength and able to preach. And I ask, Father, that you would continue to do the work of in, uh, ensuring that what I say is according to you and according to your spirit. And, and that all that's heard is designed by you to bring you glory, even as you mold us into the image of Christ. This is the eternal work, Father, that you have intended through your word to glorify your son and to build up a people who may testify to him. And our mission here, Father, in southwest Austin is, is intended to do just that, to represent Christ most of all through our lives and then also through our words. And let what we know here this morning, Father, build us up for that great mission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You all may remember a statement I made at the very beginning of our study uh, concerning the story of Abraham, back in chapter 11, I think it was. I said, Abraham did not begin his walk with the Lord as Abraham, the father of faith, right? He began not as Abraham, but Abram, the pagan worshiper in Ur. But over time, and through the series of events we've been studying in Genesis, God is at work turning Abram into Abraham. And not just in name, but in terms of who the man is and who he represents by his life. And at that same time, I think I also offered the conclusion that we as well don't begin our walk as, quote, Abrahams. We begin as Abrams, so to speak. We're called into faith just as we are in whatever station of life that God finds us in. Sons of disobedience, as Paul calls us, like Abram, prone to sin, unable to trust God, not even knowing God. That's who we were. But as God brought faith and began a work in each of us, he begins to move us forward into a life of testimony, of obedience. And that's the story of Abraham, a man who didn't start perfect and nor did he end perfect, but he moved closer and closer with each day. And over the last four lessons or so, as we went through chapter 19, we saw Abraham display a lot of those strengths that he's come to based on his walk with God through his faith in God's word. For example, remember, he showed great hospitality to the Lord. He made intercession with the Lord on behalf of the righteous in Sodom, his nephew Lot specifically. And as we left chapter 19, he was watching the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah burning, probably unaware that Lot had been saved and perhaps even struggling a little with why God let things turn out the way they did. But he still has some old habits, don't we all? You know, Abraham has still got a little bit of Abram, so to speak, inside him. And he still struggles, particularly in one area, trusting, putting his trust, his faith in the Lord. And often because he has that problem, he reverts to old patterns of sin. And what Moses is going to show us here in chapter 20 is that Abraham is still working through those struggles. But God being faithful is still good to bring to mind those sins and to give Abraham an opportunity to learn. Turn with me to chapter 20. We'll read the first few verses here as we open the chapter. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, haven't we seen this before, though, with Abraham? This ringing bells? I sure hope it is. Remember, he did exactly the same thing when he journeyed into Egypt back in chapter 12. And Abraham, making this claim that Sarah is his sister is lying. 
We know that Sarah is, in fact, his half-sister, but that's not the point. She's also his wife. So Abraham, we're told, has been staying in the Oaks of Hebron. That's where he had been back in chapter 19. That's about 18 miles as the crow flies south, southwest of Jerusalem. Now he's decided to move again, we're told. He goes further southwest toward the Negev. He settles in a place called Gerar. In some of your Bibles, if it has a map, perhaps you may have that region named on your map. It lies between Kadesh Barnea on the east and the desert of the wilderness of Shur on the west. That's approximately at a point where you'd find the Brook of Egypt, which is the traditional geographic border between southern Israel and Egypt. So to put it simply, he's placed himself yet again on the border of Egypt. Now, that's interesting because the last time he propagated this lie, he was in the same general vicinity. And if you remember, the famine took him over the border into Egypt. And so when the famine struck, it was just that much easier for him to step out of the land God had given him and into Egypt, which... Back when we studied it then, we learned that's a picture of the world. Egypt is traditionally picturing the world of sin and unbelief. So here's Abraham, as it were, bumping up against the edge of where he should be, playing with the the envelope, the borders. And at the moment that he's pressured a little, it's easy to step over the line. That's both true geographically and it's also a spiritual picture of what he's doing. So just as the last time he was in this area... Now, yet again, Abraham feels threatened. And as a result of that fear and that insecurity, he reverts to an old trick to protect himself. He tells everyone that his wife is actually just his sister, meaning not his wife. Now, you might think after the last time he tried this thing that he would have learned a lesson. Because you remember how that turned out, right? After he made that lie to Egypt, the Pharaoh took Sarah and brought him into his harem of wives You can imagine now as he's saying to her, do this again, she might have been giving him that, I told you so, look. What are you thinking? This is the striking thing about Sarah, and she's a great study in Scripture all by herself. She remains a stunning example of obedience here. Even as she knows her husband is doing the wrong thing, yet again. And she clearly, by her actions, clearly trusts in God despite her husband's errors. Because that's the only explanation for what she's doing. Scripture testifies that her actions here are on the basis of faith. She knows that her best course of action is always obedience to the Lord's direction, even if that means enduring situations like this multiple times because of the sin of her husband. The solution is not to disobey her husband because two sins don't make a right. The solution is to let God deal with her husband. And he will. Predictably here, the king of Gerar gains an interest in Sarah, just as Pharaoh had done previously. Now, the king here is called Abimelech. It's worth noting that's not actually his name. That's a title for kings of Gerar, similar to the way Pharaoh or Caesar are titles for their respective nation leaders. This is not a personal name, but a title name, Abimelech. We'll see in a later chapter of Genesis another king called Abimelech coming to the foreground again. It's a different man in the next instance, but they carry the same title. So Abraham's scheme here has resulted in exactly the same outcome. Predictably, the possibility that Sarah, though, might become another man's wife and conceive a child by that man is going to be a potentially devastating outcome, though, for God's plan with regard to the seed child, to the promised child God has said is yet now only a year away or less from showing up. So here's Abraham putting his wife in jeopardy, but more than that, putting God's plan in jeopardy. The plan for a seed, the one who God has promised who will eventually lead to the Messiah, a seed that cannot be compromised, cannot be such that we doubt 
the paternal source of this child. That's on the line now. And we know that this child is so close to being born that if Sarah were taken into the harem and there was any possibility that Abimelech could have had his way with her, then forevermore the world would be debating whose child was really the child. So God's not going to permit that. We would assume so. And in chapter 20, verse 3, we see God's response. Verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. For she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now you all chuckled with me there because this passage opens with one of my favorite lines of the entire Bible. You are a dead man. All the teenagers think they come up with all the novel, cute lines, right? No, God had this one long before anybody else did, right? He calls him a dead man here because he's taken Sarah as his wife. Calling him a dead man is a phrase that we still have in our vernacular today. It it sounds very modern. And in fact, God means it in a similar sense. It actually means two things. First, God's using it something like this. I promise I'm going to kill you. So in other words, you are as good as dead. That's the way we tend to use it, although we don't mean it literally, of course, usually. Uh, secondly, though, he's saying to Abimelech, you're dead in another sense, already dead. And by that he means the ability for Abimelech to produce children has been taken away from him instantly. His body, in other words, is dead in the same way that Sarah's body has been said to be dead In the earlier places of Scripture where we studied about her inability to bear children, her womb was dead, in other words. Well, he is now being called dead in that sense as well. God means it in both senses. So ironically, just as God is preparing to open Sarah's womb, he is closing Abimelech and his entire household, we'll find out here, uh, from having any children. And so God tells Abimelech in this dream that he is receiving this punishment because of Sarah, because he's taken Sarah. The potential here for Abimelech to compromise God's plan for Abraham and for Sarah is so great that God steps in even before Sarah is restored and he tells Abimelech, you're not going to be able to consummate this marriage. I'm not going to even permit it. Do you notice that? It wasn't merely that he could not conceive children. God said, I didn't even let you touch her. I wonder if he was aware of that actually happening. No, the answer would have been no, right? There's no way that Abimelech would have understood God was keeping him from Sarah, which again is a reminder that as a sovereign God over creation, he can orchestrate events any way he wishes in our lives and in others' lives without us necessarily being aware in the moment that he is creating the outcomes that we're seeing. Look at Abimelech's defense. He says, I acted in good faith. Abraham told me this was his sister, and I find it interesting here, for the first time we see Sarah was complicit. For the first time now we see Sarah being said to lie as well. Because she confirmed and said, he is my brother. So then Abimelech puts it before God and says, should the innocent be held accountable for doing this thing? Abimelech says, would you destroy a whole nation over this? If the family were to die, for example, if the king's family were to die, or if the king's family were to be prevented from having children, which is what God has thrown out here in front of him, it would be a destructive kind of of, of outcome for the whole nation. You can imagine some kind of power struggle emerging out of that. You can imagine the, the nation being split up. Just think what happened after David and Solomon to the nation of Israel. There are some similarities here. I want you to notice as we move past this passage, 
similarities here to what Abraham did in the prior chapter in his prayer. God here announces an intent to judge sin. And Abimelech turns and seeks for mercy for the righteous. Isn't that essentially what Abraham did as well? And like before, God gave Abraham an opportunity to pray before his nephew Lot could receive mercy. And in the same way here, Abimelech is going to have to ask Abraham to pray yet again. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So it looks like God's here at work at least in two ways. First, he's protecting Sarah and the child of the promise. But secondly, he's trying to teach Abraham yet another lesson. Because in the same way that God called Abraham to pray for Lot, Now Abraham is going to have the role of praying for Abimelech in order for Abimelech to be cured or to have these curses removed. Notice what God says to Abimelech first. He says, I acknowledge you are innocent of the wrongdoing. Furthermore, God says, I've already been at work. I'm way ahead of you here. I'm preventing you from sinning against me. And then he presents him with the solution that Abraham now has to not only have his wife restored, but pray for him. Now, the more you think about that, the more interesting it gets. First of all, why did God give Abimelech the dream in the first place? I mean, why didn't he just act like he did in Egypt? Because he didn't do this in Egypt, did he? In Egypt, he struck the nation with a plague out of the blue, which then caused Pharaoh to go back to Abraham and say, what's up with this? Why am I having these troubles? Why did you lie to me? Here, though, he seems to be going out of his way, doesn't he? He gives Abimelech the full story up front and says, if you do not agree to do what I ask, then these plagues will come upon you. Why is he treating Abimelech different? Well, I think the answer is that Abimelech is an upright man. In the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's men would have killed in order to obtain Sarah. That was the practice of Egypt. But here, Abraham has made the assumption of the same. But in reality, Abimelech is saying, I'm innocent. If I had known, I wouldn't have done this. You know my heart, God. And sure enough, all Abimelech did was take opportunity, which he saw a beautiful woman who seemed to be available, and he took her in the right way. I think that's why God is dealing differently here with Abimelech. Secondly, God says he did not let Abimelech sin against Sarah, and yet he still brings his judgment. That's curious. I mean, why doesn't he just tell Abimelech right here and now, let Sarah go and all this is over? Why does he need Abimelech to be prayed over by Abraham? Because if the only goal here is getting Sarah freed, you don't need that step, do you? Well, God has chosen to resolve this situation in this particular way because he's not just at work in restoring Sarah. As we just acknowledged, he could do that as fast as he wanted to, right? That's not his only concern. The bigger concern here is to deal with Abraham's sin. And he wants to ensure that Abimelech and Abraham meet. Because by asking for this prayer in order for Abimelech to be healed, he has given Abimelech incentive to seek out Abraham And yet, when he gets him, not kill him. So these two men have to meet, but do so under circumstances in which Abraham is still protected, but he is going to hear from Abimelech. Abimelech and the nation of Gerar are a significant presence here in the land. Abraham and his descendants are going to have to deal with these people for some time. And it's important that God make clear up front, this is a prophet, despite his failings and his errors here, 
You're going to have to work this out with him. I'm going to use that encounter for my own good purposes and growing Abraham a bit. But I'm also going to protect him and make sure that you all have the right kind of relationship. That you don't try to take advantage of him or hurt him because of his mistake. And speaking of Abraham, when these two men meet and Abimelech explains this situation to Abraham so that he might receive prayer, what do you think the impact will be on Abraham? Abraham is going to receive a rebuke here by God, but through Abimelech for his lying. And he's going to come to recognize that God has prepared all of this for his sake and that the preservation of the seed line is so important to God that he's willing to have all of this happen in this way. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me Things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? He gets up, we're told, early in the morning. And immediately that dream is is so ever present on his mind. It's got to be a dream like none other that he's ever had, right? He gets up, immediately retells this to his servants, and then they become frightened. Obviously, as he retold this story, He must have done it in such a way that it communicated the seriousness of what he had learned in his dream, which is why the servants themselves shared in his fear. And that's a sign to us. I think that details in the story for us so that we would know how seriously he took what he had been given in that dream. So seriously that the king would share it with his servants and in the retelling of it, they would share in his fear. Then next, we're told Abimelech calls Abraham, probably in a formal way, to make an appearance in the king's court. Kind of a calling to the carpet moment. Now, what do you suppose, and we've read the text, I know, but thinking about it without the text in mind for a moment, what do you think Abimelech would normally or naturally say to Abraham? What do you think you might have said? And before you answer that, I want you to remember, Abraham has Abimelech's life in his hands. Because if Abraham doesn't pray for this guy, he's toast. And Abimelech knows that, right? So might we expect that Abimelech would show great restraint, speak nicely to the guy, offer him things, pat him on the back, say, glad you're here. Would you like a chair? You know, would you like something to eat? Because after all, the whole point is to butter him up, get the prayer and get saved from the penalty God has pronounced. But that's not what Abimelech does. Instead, Abimelech reads Abraham the riot act in contemporary terms. These are harsh And strong words in a culture that put a high regard on public dignity, personal respect, the name you had was everything. So to have the king dress you down like this in a semi-public setting in the court of the king was a tremendously dishonoring thing. He says, why have you done this to me? What have I done to you to deserve this great sin? And then he goes on to say, you should not have done this, not just to me, but this kind of thing shouldn't be done to anyone. Those are fundamentally true statements. But they are strongly worded and they are remarkably confrontational. Wouldn't you agree? They border on an insult. And it makes you wonder in that very moment, was was Abimelech at all concerned that what he was saying was going to drive Abraham out of the room and there goes his opportunity for 
for saving his life and his family's life? Isn't he concerned that he's going to upset Abraham? He has so much courage here because he's displaying righteous anger against a sin. I've taught this on a number of occasions, and every time I come through this passage, I have the same instinctive response. I have so much admiration for this man, Abimelech, because he does something here that I'm not sure that I naturally would do very easily. It's not my nature to confront people in this way, and that's not altogether a good thing. In our world today, we're taught to hide our true feelings about others in order to be polite, aren't we? And in some cases, we hide our true feelings so that we can manipulate them. Though we would not necessarily think of it in those terms in the moment, in reality, that's actually what we do sometimes. We want people to like us. We want people to appreciate us and then do what we ask them to do or be more inclined to doing what we want them to do, right? We don't call it manipulation. We call it friendship. But we don't value transparency as much as we value civility. The problem is civility can be a counterproductive value in the life of the body. Abimelech here, he shows no concern for what Abraham might think or for how he might respond to the truth because he has righteousness on his side. And so he is fearless when he rebukes Abraham to his face. I think it's helpful to remember this example, and I do at times in my own walk. Remember Abimelech when dealing with others, especially our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Paul taught us to value the very same kind of model. In 1 Timothy, he's writing here to a protege, to a young man who's trying to learn how to be a pastor. And in that context, Paul says this to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 5:19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who continue in sin, and he's speaking now about the whole body, not just elders. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And then he ends like this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. That's hard. That is a stern, solemn charge on the body of Christ. To hold to these principles. That is to look upon the body without partiality, calling out sin. In an appropriate way, I think there's certainly good ways and bad ways to do it, but to just be willing to do it is important. And in Abraham's case, God has orchestrated this entire encounter strictly because he wanted Abraham to receive a rebuke in a public way. Because, honestly, the only way we're ever going to rise above our own sin so that we can pursue a life that pleases the Lord is if we are made to face our failings. We all know that's true, right? That's why parents punish children. It's because we understand that principle. And in our relationships among those in the body of Christ, the Lord wants us to feel, at times, the conviction for our sin. But that's so that he can lead us on to better things. If we don't give opportunity for that conviction moment, what do we think can come next? I don't think much does. I think we stay where we are. Because if we hide our true thoughts and we gloss over each other's imperfections, we're going to feel better, but we're not actually going to be better. Abraham's response, though, is so telling. Look what Abraham says in verse 11. Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister. The daughter of my, wife, of, my, of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she, she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander... 
from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Wow. Abraham explains, and he's responding here to Abimelech, because Abimelech has said, why did you do these things? And his response has three classic excuses for sin. In fact, they could just form categories all on their own, all three of them. First thing he says is, he claims ignorance. There's your first classic response to sin. I didn't know. He says, I thought, this is speaking of Abraham, he said, I thought surely there'd be no fear of God in this place. And in other words, what he's saying is, how was I to know that Abimelech and his people would respect life and respect marriage and do the right thing? How could I be expected to know that? Moreover, he claims, I had no reason to think that they would actually know the living God or have heard from him or that God could reach into their lives and speak to them and protect me from them. How was I supposed to know that? His point here, if you read between the lines, is he was acting reasonably based on the facts when he lied. But is there ever a situation in which the facts justify a lie? You could play a game with yourself and contrive some kind of bizarre situation in which you would then argue it's okay to lie. The gunman holding the gun to my child's head. Oh, come on. You can go into these corners of thought that seem to justify a lie. But at the end of the day, a lie is always wrong because it's always proof we don't trust God. It's always proof that we think honoring God with truthfulness and waiting on him will be a lesser outcome for us than if we manipulate the circumstances for our own gain through lying and get what we want our way. It's fundamentally a failure to trust God. So what Abraham is claiming here is that his lie was justified under the circumstances because it was the natural way to preserve himself against the attack of Abimelech. But what do the facts of the case actually argue for? God told us already in the dream that he was acting to prevent Abimelech from even touching Sarah. So did he need to lie? Was it Abraham's lie that protected himself from death? Clearly not. Because if God was capable of stepping in to protect Sarah, then it stands to reason he could have done the same for Abraham without the lie in the first place. But that would have required Abraham saying up front, no matter what happens as I step into Gerar, I trust God will do the right thing by me and Sarah, whatever that is, whatever he deems to be right. God is more than capable of handling Abimelech or any set of circumstances that we may face and doesn't need our help through lies. The second thing Abraham does, second major category of excuse, he quibbles. That's a word we don't hear much anymore, but it, it means playing loose with the facts in order to dispute whether it was really a lie or not. That's what he really says here. He tries to wiggle out of the fact that he lied. So now we're arguing about the details rather than about the fundamental issue of you tried to deceive me or not. He begins here by explaining that Sarah is really his sister. Oh, she's actually my sister. It's not like I really lied. She's half my sister. That's what he's saying. As if that somehow addresses the issue at hand. The issue at hand is not whether she's your sister. The issue is, is she your wife? Right? And we all knew that. He knew that. Abimelech knew that. The whole thing is silly. He failed to disclose the important fact that C and Sarah were married, and he did so intentionally so as to deceive and avoid what he feared was a threat to his life. Folks, that kind of playing with the words, that's simply a sign that repentance has yet to take hold in the heart. Wouldn't you agree? 
If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? In that quibbling moment, you're listening for the details in their voice and in their words to find out, is this a child who recognizes they made a mistake? Or is this a child who is yet to get it? You're looking at a man who, at least in this very moment, has yet to get it. You lied, Abraham. You lied. Now you clearly see why the Lord wanted to orchestrate this moment with Abimelech, don't you? To bring this out in the open, to force him to have to say these words. I wonder if even as they came out of his mouth, he wasn't retreating a little bit from them in his heart. Hearing them in his own ears and saying, oh boy, that that, that doesn't work, does it? The final excuse Abraham uses, the third classic example. He blames God and by extension his circumstances. Abraham says it was God who caused him to leave the protection and security of his homeland. Implying that, you know, God has forced Abraham into this position where now he's vulnerable and that's why he has to lie. After all, you know, God has put me out here on my own. It's not my fault. And so in response to God's obviously unfair command, you know, leave and go to a place I will show you. He has told Sarah now to propagate this charade. Notice everywhere. This is news to us, too. We haven't seen this before. Abraham says this is something he expected Sarah to do everywhere they went. We have two times in Scripture in which we see this happening here and in the earlier part of Genesis. But it's apparent he's been doing it everywhere. These are just the two times that got him in trouble, or at least the two that we hear about in Scripture. But in reality, nothing in God's instructions to Abraham concerning leaving her and coming to the promised land compelled him to make up this lie. Nothing. He had no reason to suspect that what God was doing was leading him into a trap, did he? The only reason he came to that conclusion is because he failed to trust the same God who called him. You know, he felt like it's going to be God plus something if I'm going to be safe. Folks, as we think back about these three excuses, and we'll, we'll move on now to finish the chapter, but before we do, just think back and classify these in your own mind, these, these three ways in which we deal with our sin and with our rebuke and keep them in mind that sometimes we tend to play fast and loose with the words denying we ever lied that we sometimes blame God or circumstances as if we had no choice if the Lord orchestrates a similar moment in your life or in my life for the good of our own conviction a moment in which some brave soul comes to us face to face and calls us on something make sure you don't ruin it by running to the pointless excuses. Don't lose the benefit. How rare is it to have someone with enough courage to actually tell us to our face when we need to hear something about what we did wrong? Why ruin that opportunity that God has laid in front of us to learn and grow by trying to make excuses and hide? Consider the rebuke carefully and accept it as if from the Lord. I have a very close friend who I was talking to on the phone one day and and I don't even remember what I said. It was something silly came to mind in a moment. And I shared a joke sort of in passing in our conversation. The intent was to make a funny joke about his wife. And the next day he called me and he said, Steve, it's been on my mind. I wanted to bring this back to your attention. You said this thing yesterday and it insulted me because it was it was insulting to my wife. And I just wanted you to know you said that. And I had at the time no concept that my words were being heard that way. But as he brought that rebuke, I thought back through it and I realized you're right. That was a very unkind thing to say. And I apologize. And I thanked him in the moment for his willingness to get back on the phone the next day and have that kind of a conversation with a close friend, not knowing if that might harm our friendship. 
It shouldn't have. I mean, that would have been wrong on my part if it did. But he didn't know if I was going to do the right thing or not. But he brought it to me because he knew that was the right thing for me. And, you know, ever since then, and you can tell I remembered that situation, right? Ever since then, I'm not saying I haven't done stupid things. That happens daily. I often say dumb things. But I'm more mindful, at least a little, about that issue. And particularly if I'm talking about someone's spouse. That is right. I should do that. How did I learn that? Because someone took it upon their own to take a moment in their day and give me a rebuke in the right way, in a loving way. And I hope I've taken it to heart the way the Lord wanted. So even though Abraham offers Abimelech these excuses, look what Abimelech does in response. Based on his fear of the Lord, verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men. You are cleared. Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. After this incident, you know he has very little respect for Abraham. I mean, I can't imagine he's thinking that this guy is much to be admired for what he's done and now for what he said. So for God, though, Abimelech does the right thing. He gives Abraham essentially the keys to his kingdom, the right to settle anywhere in the land. He gives him animals. He gives him servants. And particularly for Sarah, he gives this bounty or, or this payment. Vindication is a way of saying your proof of innocence in the form of this payment. It's very interesting, though. He directs it to her, which was not common in a patriarchal society. Women didn't own anything. Her husband owned. But Yet he goes out of his way in both his language and in the gesture that he makes to make clear he's not giving this to Abraham. He's not vindicating Abraham. He's vindicating her. Now, why does he say that to a woman who said he is my brother? Because her actions were directed by her husband. So it is his mistake. And she was being obedient to him under these circumstances. That is not a general rule. In other words, I could not look at you today and say every time a husband tells a wife to do the wrong thing, she's obligated to do it. That's not what I'm saying. But under the circumstances, she chose to do that. And Abimelech's view of it in the moment was, I'm holding you innocent in regard to this situation because I see it as your husband's problem and not yours. That was his judgment, his determination. And Abimelech did that in order to make clear how he viewed Abraham. So he gives these tokens of respect, these payments and these opportunities but he does so because God has made clear, this is a prophet, this is a man you must respect because of me, not because of what he does. So looking back, God brings Abraham through this moment only because Abraham needs to see his own failures in trusting God. You know, he's believed God's promises. He's been declared righteous on the basis of that faith. But in the everyday needs of his life, Abraham still runs to the world. For his protection, he runs to the world's methods, lying, deceiving. And what's so ironic, and I think particularly instructive for us, is God is not above using the pagan, unbelieving world when he needs to, to show a prophet of the living God that he still has growth spiritually that he needs to make. 
Don't be surprised when the love God has for us as his children directs him to do much the same thing in our lives. Bringing conviction from an unexpected source in our world so that he might use those moments to grow us a little more in our trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we thank you now, Father, in advance for the conviction that you bring us through the loving words of those who would have the courage to confront us. There's such a fine balance there, Father. We know it in our hearts. We sense it. It'd be so easy for us, Father, to become self-righteous and to try to take the splinter out of others' eyes while leaving the log firmly planted in our own. That's not what you want. But so often, Father, I think we tend to err on the opposite side. We see no splinters and we see no logs. We prefer to believe everybody is fine, including ourselves. We know that's not true either. So we ask, Father, that as, I, as we endeavor to gather together in spirit and truth, we let that truth rest in our hearts such that we are willing to acknowledge our own failings with one another. We're willing to bring those things before one another. And when the times come, Father, that you bring us a challenge, a rebuke, a conviction from someone we know or even someone we don't, I ask, Father, for just enough patience in the moment for each of us that we might hear those words as if from you. And listen, rather than make excuses, give us the heart to do that, Father, because we know if we are willing to do those things, you can grow us in ways we can't imagine. That's what we want, Father. Whether we want to go through the difficulties it requires or not, we know what we want at the end. We want to be Christ-like. So give us an opportunity, Father, and then help us grow through those opportunities. And as this small church, Father, endeavors to do those things and to be Christ-like and to learn and help others, I pray, Father, you'd entrust into our hands the lives of even more who we may be able to minister to when you see fit, knowing that we must first be ready for them so that we may honor you in our service. But, but as we endeavor to be ready, I pray, Father, you would respond by giving us that opportunity to serve more people and to bring more into the city here to know you as you may choose. And like uh, I always say, Father, at the end of every service, thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and for the many who serve here. And may we be joined by more next week as it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.